You're listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where well-being matters. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchat.com and the Teach Well Alliance. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the We Lead Well podcast. I am Vicky Maguire. I'm an education and leadership coach. I work with school leaders and teachers to support them to improve their well-being and I do this through coaching. I do that in a variety of ways. I do some one-to-one coaching with school leaders and teachers. I deliver the Resilient Leaders Elements Leadership Programme. And I also help schools to set up coaching communities for teaching and learning to help teachers to gain more ownership of their own work. I also run group coaching programs for women leaders and I've created the Women Lead Well Coaching Network to provide a supportive network for female school leaders. I currently have only one place left now on the September cohort of the Women Lead Well group coaching program so if that's something you would be interested in finding out a bit more about you can email me it's vicky at weleadwell.co.uk so today on the show i have an interview with the amazing megan corcoran now megan is actually australian so i am broadening my reach with the podcast i've had americans now i've got an Australian joining me and Megan has been working for 12 years in the alternative provision sector down there in Australia and she's really concerned about the current recruitment and retention crisis that she feels is significantly affected by teacher well-being. She's actually set up um, an organisation called Teachers Well which she set up during lockdown because she was concerned about the well-being of teachers and what might happen when they had to return back to that fast-paced hamster wheel environment of teaching in schools and she tells us all about that but she's got a really great understanding of how well-being communities can be created in schools and she shares all her ideas with us so we're really lucky that she came to join us on the show i'm sure you're going to get lots of ideas from her for how you can improve well-being in your schools so enjoy the interview i think you're going to really like this one Megan Corcoran, welcome to the We Lead Well podcast. It is lovely to have you here all the way from sunny Melbourne, Australia. It's winter there. I suppose it's autumn, isn't it? <laughs> You've it's got a scarf on a jumper though, so I'm thinking it's not as hot as, <laughs> as some of our listeners might imagine. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. You're welcome. It's an absolute pleasure that you're the first. I've, I've interviewed an American and now I'm interviewing an Australian. So I'm definitely broadening my reach, which is amazing. <laughs> so thank you for joining us, um, especially with the uh, with the time difference. So that's much appreciated. Tell, Can you tell the listener a little bit about yourself then, a bit about sort of your career to date and what you do now and where you're going next as well? Sure. No problem at all. Um, So I've been working in alternative schools in Melbourne for 12 years now. Um, So when I say alternative schools, I'm talking about schools that work with young people who've experienced uh, disadvantage, maybe disengaged from school, have had childhood trauma, like might have youth justice involvement. Um, So yeah, they're high school students. Um, So yeah, I've been teaching and also in leadership positions for the last 12 years in schools. Um, I think it's one of the best jobs in the world. But at the moment, um, 
the education system is definitely facing a crisis and it's pretty significant here in Melbourne at the moment. Um, teachers are leaving rapidly. Um, schools just have huge shortages at the moment. Um, so currently I'm in a leadership position, but I've been teaching most days to fill the gaps. Um, and I'm quite passionate about seeing the education system change for the better. So I'm actually, I have a few weeks left in my, my leadership role at the school at the moment. Um, and I'm actually stepping out to do some more consulting work with schools more directly and really trying to look at how we can support teacher wellbeing and encourage people to stay in the profession, um, be, a, be attracted to entering the profession um, so that we can do a lot better for our students than what we're really doing now. It's interesting, isn't it? I was just thinking then when you were, were talking about a recruitment crisis and we're in the same position in the UK, there's a, there's a shortage of high quality candidates when you are going through a recruitment process. And I'm thinking that must be even more challenging in alternative provision to get quality candidates and quality staff because of the, the challenges that you face. You know, if mainstream schools are facing recruitment and retention issues, and I think at the minute after lockdown, actually, a lot of it is retention, isn't it? It's retaining your best staff. Is that your experience that it's been even more challenging in alternative provision? Absolutely. I think um, in our sector, we really rely on people to be passionate, which yeah. I know, you know, the teaching sector does in general. But you've got um, to, you've got, like, I always think <laughs> one of the questions sometimes I want to ask staff I've worked with is, do you really like kids? Like, because it's not always really clear with some teachers who I've worked with <laughs> that they like. I think, I think most of them do, to be honest. I think some of them have just got a bit careworn. But to work in alternative provision, you really do have to have a passion for, for caring about children. You've got to have, you've, I suppose you've got to have a level of empathy that is a lot more, I suppose, a lot more developed than you Absolutely. might you might be able to get away with in a in a mainstream school. Yeah, and I think teachers that enter our schools need to wear multiple hats. Like they really need to be caring about the young person's well-being. Um, be equipped to do so and know that that's a big bulk of the work. Um, yeah, so right now it's really tricky. Um, I think it used to be quite kind of competitive earlier on. Like so I'd say throughout my career, there have been times when it's been a competitive industry to get into and leadership roles were hard to get. Um, I guess there was a lot of trauma-informed training going on and people were starting to see that that's the sort of work they wanted to do. Uh, but the, with the teacher shortage now, there's been such a shift we get people saying they're interested in our school. They'll we'll schedule an interview. They won't show up for the interview um, or they will. And then they'll come visit the school for a day and then decide it's not for them. Um, so, yeah, we have huge shortages at the moment and, yeah, very low on applicants and trying to retain the ones that are still there. <laughs> and that, that's, that's really difficult, isn't it? So you, you've created um, a group called Teach as well, haven't you? Has this... Has the, the this retention crisis that you're experiencing, is that one of the reasons that you created that to try to, do you feel like if wellbeing was better in schools, we wouldn't be having the, the retention crisis that we're, we're in the midst of? Um, it's really interesting. Teachers Well was actually born in lockdown. Um, so some friends and I were actually starting to talk about the um, wellbeing crisis that teachers were facing when lockdown was coming to an end, we were actually concerned for teachers returning to the fast-paced work that we knew. Yeah. Um, and that's when it first started generating. We, we just started talking about it, um, brainstorming 
different ways we could approach it with our own school communities. And that's when Teach As Well was really born. Um, so it was interesting. There wasn't really a teacher shortage right then, but it seems to have really spiraled out of control. Um, yeah, in the last sort of 12 months, I guess. Um, yeah, so now we see Teach As Well as having relevance in trying to retain teachers, but initially it was just more about supporting their well-being and acknowledging that we've got daily challenges together and we can come together as a community and work through that. So tell me about the work that you do with them. Tell me about what Teach As Well is and, and how it works. Yeah, so essentially Teach As Well is about supporting people who work in schools um, who we, we call them um, wellbeing education leaders and learners. So it's like the WELL acronym. Um, so essentially we just want people who would like to be a wellbeing leader or learner in their school um, who have a passion for that that can then come together with other people who are very like-minded and learn some skills and some processes that they can then go and apply with their own school. Um, so essentially we try and keep the group pretty small because we know we're asking them to be quite vulnerable with each other. We're taking them through some pretty um, deep processes at times around deep listening and coaching and supporting each other with the intention that they can then go back and do that for a small group at their school. Um, so that's the, that's the goal essentially through teachers as well. That sounds, that sounds really, I suppose, with the coaching approach as well, it's about staff supporting each other and it's not something mm -hmm. that's led through a senior leadership team. Cause I sometimes mm -hmm. have, I have an issue with senior leaders who create a well-being committee or something like that. And then it's okay. So that committee, you feed back to us and tell us what's going on in the school. And it seems a little bit, I mean, I suppose these people who are doing this work with you, there's an, there's a, I suppose an expectation of extra workload but sometimes I feel like in a school you ask people to be on a well-being committee looking at staff workload and actually you've just increased their workload by asking them to mm. be on the committee so how does that how does that work in terms of do senior leadership teams approach you to say come and do this work in our school or do teachers come to you to say we need this work in our school so can you help us how does it work in that way yeah, it's been a really interesting experience so far. So initially it was leaders who were coming to us. So our first couple of sessions, we noticed it was mostly leaders signing up. Um, but we're curious to see what happens in our next program. We're doing a lot more work to try and get teachers in. Um, yeah, so we're, we've reached out to, to some organisations that have really strong connections with teachers and they're, they're sharing our work for us as well. Um, but yeah, so essentially um, the reason I really want teachers as opposed to just leaders as well is um, one of the schools I've done some work with, we actually surveyed um, that community to find out why people were calling in sick, um, but what were the protective factors for them to ensure that they could be at work every day and have good well-being. And um, item number one that they that came out really strong above everything else was colleague support. Um, so leadership support was number two, but quite drastically lower than colleague support. Um, so it was just really interesting. That was only one school sample, but that really stood out to me as being a real key factor is, is knowing that you've got colleagues and peers who are looking after you. Um, and not leaders who are essentially kind of paid to look after you, or that's like, that's part of their role really, but just knowing that you've got good culture um, on the peer level is really important. So uh, I, I noticed that you you are very passionate about wellbeing communities um, in schools. So can you describe like what a wellbeing community in a school looks like or feels like? Well, at its best, I think, um, like before lockdown, I feel like that's what an alternative school can function like because we are smaller schools. Um, we are working with high-risk young people. We really prioritise well-being of staff and young people. 
Um, so when it's working really well, it actually has more of a family environment to, to it, I guess. Um, we eat together. We have like little rituals and routines um, and everyone in the community has a very significant role. Um, but then I guess, yeah, lockdown sort of shifts things and then the teacher shortage shifts things again. <laughs> um, so essentially with teach as well, um, what we're trying to do is ensure that like everyone can sort of look after each other and that everyone has the skills and resources and strategies to do so. Um, so it's not about having like big well-being days or big significant events that, that capture well-being, but it's about actually embedding some rituals and routines. They can be even really short, but just so you know, people have your back and that you are a community and you're there for each other is um, really key, I think. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because I feel like sometimes schools in the most challenging circumstances or like you're saying, alternative provision schools, the schools where staff are really tightly knit and have to mm. really support each other. And sometimes in schools that are in different contexts, there isn't necessarily that sense of a really close-knit community. And you talked about processes and practices that people can put in place to create that, that feeling of support and, and that sense of being part of a well-being community. So what are the, what are, can you give us some examples of the practices and processes that people can put in place to create that sense of well-being yeah I think um for me the key that I've learned in leadership has definitely been about co-creating the well-being approach with your with your team um so well-being is not something you do to your team but it's something you create together um and I think I learned that through leadership so um it's been a journey for me as well um but essentially I do that with my team I find out um, what rituals they would like to see in place and what routines I'd like to see in place. And then we build on them, on them together. Um, interestingly, that can be really short and sharp. So my team always meet every single morning. Um, they decided they wanted to keep that, even though I didn't, like I, I quizzed them and checked to make sure that that's what they still want when we're so overworked at the moment. Um, but they want to see each other just every morning. And um, we do a little routine or an activity together. So different staff can lead that. Um, and we have different prompts that we use to just check in with each other. Um, so it's really about seeing each other, hearing each other, having a laugh together in the morning first and seeing their leadership team so they know they can ask a question before the day starts. I've found that if we don't do that, um, I might find a staff member later in the day and they've been stressing on something they wanted to ask me and they, you know, they didn't find me for four hours or something and they've been stewing on this very small thing that if we could have talked about it at 8am, their day would have panned out a lot differently. Um, so I think it's just having access to each other um, having fun together as a team and letting the staff tell you what they want, what they would like to see. Um, similar in lockdown as well, like I was always just checking like what wellbeing processes do we want as a team? Um, I overthought it at the start and I was applying the whole, I'm going to do wellbeing to my team. Um, and that meant that I put on my calendar, a check-in call with every staff member each fortnight. Um, and my calendar was totally full. And that was silly for me, but it was also not responsive to what they needed. So I was calling people and a lot of them were like, I don't need this call. <laughs> they weren't directly saying that, but I could sense it over time. Um, so even in lockdown, I think I learned a lot about wellbeing practice and actually just asking people, what would you like to see? What is your wellbeing? And trusting them to do it for themselves. Um, moving away from tokenistic wellbeing strategies. Um, and really what I, what I find really challenging in teaching is that it is such a fast paced job. Um, it is very, very fast paced and people that aren't in the industry would probably have no idea how fast paced it is, um, but it is. And then we expect teachers to then go and do self-care after work so that they can then come back the next day and do it well again. Um, so I really am trying to move away from preaching self-care and really looking at how we can do collective care 
in how we can actually support each other's well-being and have people that are upskilled in coaching and supporting their, their teammates essentially so that the community can hold it together. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I think one of the things that is prominent right now, I think, is the sense of individual members of staff being responsible for their own well-being. And like you've said, you know, engaging in self-care activities. Do you see that as being a difficulty or a challenge that people have faced when it's approached like that? Um, look, to be honest, I love self-care and I'm, <laughs> I engage in it a lot, but, um, but for me, that's, it's also still very connected to other people. So, um, for me personally, I, I box a lot. So, and then I've got a boxing community, so I get a lot of wellbeing from that. And that's a choice that I make. Um, but I just think there's a risk in just placing it all on the person to, to make choices about their self-care. And I remember hearing another school leader, so not from, not from my school, but another school, um, just made a comment one day where she she was talking about teachers and she just said, oh, you know, it's a busy day and then and then you need to go do your self-care before you go home. And she just said it like it was a given, like it's an expectation that we all engage in a self-care activity before we end the day. Um, and I just thought there's a real risk in that and a real danger in, in extending the day and giving teachers another task to do just because the job's so hard. It would be slightly ironic, wouldn't it, if that was added to the <laughs> list of pressures that teachers are under to go and do some self-care I I think it's like it's like you're saying one of the things that you get quite a lot of I suppose your well-being comes from being part of the boxing community that you're in and that's that is a sense of you know creating that community what do you think about you know not all teachers want to be part of that a community are always being with people do they um I think sometimes I'm a little bit like that myself I can, I can shy away from those social situations what I'm not going to ask you what the solution to that is but you know what what are your thoughts on that yeah no it's a really good question I think um I think, yeah, I have to acknowledge, like, I'm probably more extroverted in my approach to well-being, but obviously, yeah, we're all very different with that. Um, and I think, yeah, when I say we don't do well-being to people, but we create it together, like, we need to acknowledge there are different ways to do it. Um, so when I say my team come together every morning as well, there's been a couple of times where if a different teacher is leading the activity, they actually instruct us to go for a walk instead. Um, and and then I just tell staff where they can find me after the walk to ask the questions for the day or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, so just like giving people that that choice and that power to actually um, share with others as well what their well-being looks like um, and acknowledging that we all do it very differently and that that's absolutely okay as well. Mm, that's that's another challenge, isn't it? Because it's, it's really important. I, I did a podcast with Dr. Helen Kelly, who's... Um, done a lot of research into well-being for teachers and school leaders and um I've just completely lost my train of thought that just it just went right out of my head um I just have no idea what I was going to say <laughs> can you help me out <laughs> um we were talking about the risk of um people needing space as opposed to yes. being in communities so, so <laughs> my mind just went blank I have to I've, I've got to admit to admit to it's not really admit to but um per, perimenopausal and brain fog is having a significant impact on me so <laughs> an example would be 
just complete it's not great when you're making a podcast to just completely <laughs> forget what you were talking about I completely forget words I can't grasp a really simple word that I need so she talks about asking staff what do you need as part yeah. of like your well-being process because everybody's different and that's really difficult isn't it because it's like when you teach a class and you think about differentiation and every single child in that class is an individual who mm. has a different approach to their learning. It can be quite, it, it can be quite overwhelming that thought of, wow, I need to provide something that suits the individual needs of all my learners. And that's a little bit the same with well-being, isn't it? If you take that approach of it's an individual thing, everybody has different needs. You ask, you know, what do you need from us to support your well-being? you could be in a whole world of pain, couldn't you? Because there are so many different needs that people have got. Yeah. So what what would you say about that? Um, for that, I think it really comes back to values, like understanding what the values, the, the agreed values are of the community um, before you go down those rabbit holes. Okay. <laughs> um, so I guess like I, I very much use values um, to set the culture and to understand what we want to co-create together as well so it's not just like open-ended um you know we're right at a and z um it has some provisions around it as well and i always use values as my way to guide that process so uh with my team at work it's very much about actually the school values and um we abide by like we we connect everything that we do to those so we link everything that we can decide to one of our school values um and same with teach as well we actually have four values that we um we link everything to um just so the community who's accessing us knows um a little bit about how we work as well and what values we hold to know what's right for them. Um, so that would be my advice around that as well. I think it's just making sure you've got some core values that they're the agreed values that you have with your community and then things can um, be a little bit more contained. Well, you are, you fit right in on the We Lead Well podcast because <laughs> I am always <laughs> going on about values and how they have to underpin everything that we do. Would you mm-hmm. advocate for um uh, that being a a part of an activity where staff engage in a you know everybody comes together and discusses what the values are because I I say this often on the podcast I go into schools and I see you know a list of values up on the wall and think oh okay Mm. sometimes I think this happens in multi-academy trusts as well you get a, a list of values it's like these are the values of our school and I think people you know members of staff might look at those and go oh are they okay well you know I wasn't involved in that so that so there's there's not a like there's a bit of a disconnect with it and it's hard then to get the staff to embody and live those values and engage in those values in the work that they do with the children if they've not had any sort of part in the the creation of those values so would you advocate for like doing that as a shared collaborative activity with staff? Absolutely. Um, to be honest, I've worked in schools where they have just been on the wall um, and I haven't known them off the top of my head. I actually remember sitting in an interview one day where I was interviewing a teacher and they saw them on the wall and started referencing them and I had to look and be like, oh, which one? like, is that what they are? Um, so like I've worked in schools where they haven't been at the centre of what we do. Um, but I've been really lucky in the last school I've been in, it's the centre of everything we do. Um, including with the students. Um, so we talk about them every single day. So it's even a way of working with behaviour with young people at our school. So if there's a, a behaviour that's looking like it might be a little bit challenging, 
we can always reference one of our values to initiate a conversation with that young person to just be like, hey, you know, um, are you operating safely right now? And we can have a conversation about it and redirect them a little bit. Um, so yeah, it's at the center of everything we do with staff as well. So I think when values are really alive and lived in the community and people actually believe in them, um, they're going to have a lot more direction around well-being. So if values aren't strong right now, I would suggest getting the team to create them together and um, make sure those voices are in there as well. And it's something that you have to keep coming back to, isn't it? Because obviously the 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 makeup of your staff body is going to change over time and the, the context of your school and the community that you're within. So would you recommend doing that as a, like coming back to it every, I don't know, every few years to just check in with everybody and make sure that there's still an identification with those values and that there's still a, a, a sense that these are still our values? I absolutely agree with that. I think language is so important and words can shift over time as well to what they mean for a community too. So for example, respect is one of our school values, but respect can be so negotiated. Like what it means to one person can mean something very different to someone else. Um, that's actually one of the reasons why I love having respect as one of our school values. I think it's important to have those conversations and negotiate it. Um, but yeah, I think it's really important to keep reviewing uh, what the values are and what they mean and unpacking them further, choosing different ones if they're not working for the community anymore. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting activity. It would be an interesting activity to do that, wouldn't it? To sort of un mm. un unpack and unpick the values and what they mean. I mean, I know a lot of children who say, you know, that teacher doesn't respect me, but the teacher would say, well, that, that child's not showing me any respect. So, in, and it's like, well, what does yeah. respect actually mean? How do you show that respect? There are, I yeah. suppose, lots of discussions that you could have. I always think as well that if you can, the, I think the challenge for me when I went through the difficulties that I had when I was a deputy head and before I had to step back from it, I think was not being able to be authentic in my role because I, I wasn't living my own values because there was a clash between, I feel there was a clash between my value system and that of the head. And that had a really big impact on my well-being. And I think that lots of lots of schools are doing lots of work on well-being and they're doing lots of work on elements like curriculum or quality assurance or um, assessment and feedback and all those things. But I, my feeling on it, and I don't know if you agree with me, is that you can't do those things and you can't get people to buy into those things and staff won't buy into it. And you probably won't retain your staff in your school if you don't allow them to live authentically when they're, when they're engaged in those curriculum monitoring mm. assessment activities. Because if you don't go through that process of, allowing staff to share their values and understand how they share values with each other and this probably comes back to what you're saying about that staff supporting each other and, and working together and collaborating because it's about understanding where do we have the same values where do we believe the same things and then how can we all then feel like we're being authentic in this place I mean values is a huge thing isn't it everybody's got different mm. values but without that process of identifying all your shared values and thinking, right, actually, well, th 
this is the basis that we can all work together from, then we can all be authentic and then we can believe in this stuff that we're doing. Does that make sense to you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's why it's so important that they are actually alive in the community, that they're not just on a wall, um, you know, just as words that we refer to, to feel like we've ticked the box to say that we've got values. <laughs> like it has to be alive. It has to be yeah, applied in the community. And do you see the link into sort of being purpose-driven as well through the values work that you do? How, how important would you say that is to well-being? Very much so. It's a, it's, um, a blessing and a curse, I think, the purpose <laughs> side of things. Um, and actually one of my uh, colleagues in Teach as well just recently wrote a blog about that, um, that it's a bit of a trap for teachers that um, we rely on their purpose so much. Like we, it's meaningful work um, and that's why people are in it. But is that also a burden in a way? Is that why they are working such long hours, um, you know, that they are such servants? Um, and then is that actually impacting their well-being in a negative way? Because they identify so closely with the work um, that they, you know, push themselves beyond what we would actually think is reasonable at times. Because your purpose is to support pupils in what, whatever, you know, if it's pastorally or even if it's academically, and you feel like your job is never done, you know, you could, all, and that's what creates that sense of, I think, guilt in teachers as mm. well, that you could have done more, you could have helped that child, you could have done things differently if you'd done that. I think the flip side of it, though, is that sometimes teachers lose that sense of purpose. And that has a big impact on well-being. And it has a big impact on how teachers engage in their roles. And, and that can be a difficulty in schools as well can't it oh absolutely I think um yeah we can see when it's someone's sort of career and then when it becomes someone's job when it's sort of like well this is what I know to do I'm going to turn up every day and do my job and go home at the end of the day um yeah it's a really tricky tricky one I think I think there's a lot of people that have probably ridden lots of waves around where they're up to with their purpose and yeah it's about trying to reconnect them with it or let them recognize that their purpose may have shifted like may have shifted to something else and is there something that we can do to help to reconnect teachers with their purpose well interestingly um purpose is actually one of our teachers well values so we only have four right. um and purpose purpose is actually um one of yeah one of the four um and we we see our values as a compass so we actually use our values as compass points and purpose is actually the one that we say is at the true north um but we recognize that right now it could be really clouded um, and it could be really hard to see that true north. There might be fog in the way or whatever it might be. All the mess and all the chaos of the actual system right now is clouding, clouding that true north. Um, so I feel like, yeah, the purpose is there, but sometimes we can't always see it. And that's why the other values become really important. Like we need to visit those other compass points um, to get a little bit more clarity and to like reconnect and to get a bit more courage and to try and change different things around so that we can get back up there again. So I feel like it can't exist alone. Like it needs to be supported by, by other values as well. And what are the other values on the other points of the compass then? Can you take us through those? Yeah, sure. So we've then got, so we've got um, purpose is our true north. And then we have curiosity, which is really about that coaching and questioning and getting a little bit deeper into what's going on in the system. What challenges are we facing right now? But um, yeah, and going a little bit deeper and really getting into that listening point. Um, the next one is compassion. So really trying to figure out how we can be compassionate about what we're experiencing at the moment um, and how challenging things really are and being a bit more compassionate to ourselves. And then it's courage. So what, do, what can we action to really make change 
um, whether it's just for ourselves and the way we're functioning right now or whether it's bigger and it's about the education system or something for a young person. Um, so really engaging with that courage to try and make some sort of change and then hopefully we'll be back around to our purposes a little bit clearer again. I, I think, you know, those those values that you're talking about there apply to teachers but could also apply to leaders in schools as well, couldn't they? And the, the, the curiosity um, value that you've got there can you tell me a bit more about that? Because that really interests me in a lot of the work that I do with leaders who are at, tend to be at the start of their leadership journey. Um, and I talk a lot to them about curiosity and actually being curious and getting out there and finding out what's happening, what's going on. Um, so can you talk us through that a little bit? Because I'm interested in that one. Before we find out more from Megan about curiosity and how that can have an impact on your well-being, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our partner, Head Teacher Chat. Head Teacher Chat discusses lots of topics from how to support pupils with learning, how to support parents and the many issues that come with leading a school. The aim of Head Teacher Chat is to support head teachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. And this year, they've even launched the very first School Leader Planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Head Teacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www.headteacherchat.com. Head Teacher Chat. It's what head teachers are talking about. Now let's get back to the interview. Yeah, I think um, curiosity really like became really important to us as we were going through the development of Teach as well. Um, so sort of like what's led us here? You know, what, why are we here? Why are we creating this little community together? Um, and it really did become about, um, you know, what is going on and like leading into that. Like how do we find out more about what's going on? Uh, why is it happening? But it's, it was also a little bit about play as well. So we kind of wanted to, while it can be about getting deeper and deeper into understanding something, it can also be a playful compass point as well. So it can be a playful um, a playful value to have too, where we can actually just ask really fun questions and learn a little bit more about each other and have that experience as well. Um, but it did, it, I guess it's also a lot to do with the coaching model that we try and use too. So you really need to hold strong curiosity to ask amazing questions and to really get further into unpacking something for someone and assisting them with that through your questioning too. So coaching is really important to your wellbeing model then? Yeah, yeah, but just assisting people to uh, coach each other. Um, so we essentially often run case clinics as well where someone um, may have talked to one of us before the session begins and we've, we've supported them to unpack a wellbeing challenge that they would like to raise with the group. Um, and then they become the case giver and the rest of the group become the coaches. Um, so the case giver sort of gives their story, um, dives deeper into it. The rest will do um, different things where we think about metaphors that came up and do a bit of journaling around it and then have opportunity to ask some clarifying questions to support that person to move forward after they've given their case. So when you talk about this group how is the group formed and when when does this discussion happen 
Yeah, so essentially we're trying to run a, um, a cohort each term. So during the school term, um, the cohort can exist for that, that term and we'll have, um, we'll have a session together each week. Um, at the moment, it's um, pretty amazing that people would like to sign up because it is after hours at the moment, like understanding that it's really tricky for teachers to get release time, um, especially in the current climate in a teacher shortage. Um, yeah, so it is after hours at the moment. Um, and yeah, we come together once a week, but in between sessions, people can have a coaching session with one of the um, people that work for Teach as well to prepare them for their case giving or to unpack a challenge with them or to support them with the skill development they would like to then go and attempt to apply with their school community. So it's people who sign up to Teach as well who are from different schools who come together yeah. to share yeah and we've learned there's um there's a bit of a power in that as well and it's something we've been reflecting on um a lot at the moment too is that there's a real reluctance to be overly vulnerable with our colleagues in schools um whereas when people come to teach as well it's we create a lot of safety in the group um but we've noticed that people will go a lot deeper in a community where they know they've got like-minded individuals with them who understand the industry um, but they're not their colleagues who can then look at them in a different way at work or worry about their performance because they've raised a wellbeing challenge. Um, so we've been trying to reflect on that too, about when people go and apply this in their school, how there does need to be that consideration given that maybe there's power in teachers' wellbeing external to your school. Um, it's something you can seek out away from your school community too and have a separate community to belong to. I have had experience of this in the group coaching programs that I lead. Um, and I've done there are different approaches that I've taken so generally it's it's women leaders who come from different schools and come together they don't know each other they bring different challenges issues are from different types of schools and that has like you're saying that's been very powerful because they've not felt that they can't share things openly because someone from their school might be there might judge them and yet I've done um, I've done the group coaching program for um, a multi-academy trust and I've done it for a school where the women have been from the same school. I think my experience is that I found it takes a little bit longer and you need to meet more regularly when you're working with um, or when I work with women leaders who are from the same school, it takes a little bit longer to build up that element of trust. And I think when I delivered it for the multi-academy trust, normally I do a session every other week and every every other session is a, is a guest speaker. Whereas when I did the multi-academy trust, we had a session every week. And I feel like because of the regularity of the sessions, it meant that that trust and the relationships built that little bit more quickly than they mm. did when I did the sessions with the others. And I'm not saying that, you know, it, it's, it's much better to do like the external people who don't know each other. And there are just different challenges, aren't there, when you're working within different groups. And I wouldn't like schools to think, oh, well, I couldn't put that on. I couldn't do something like that in my school because then it wouldn't work. I do wonder whether it's not being in the school environment because I do it obviously it's all done virtually and sometimes whether that might be a contributing factor I don't know what you think yeah it could be actually that could be an element of it maybe it's even that mental separation that they know they're coming outside of work hours to do this thing for themselves right now um, it could be a lot of different factors I've been really curious about this side of things um, for a while especially after we all reflected on our last sort of community circle that we had um, recognizing that 
yeah, it was a level of vulnerability we none of us had seen in a school group yet. But um, yeah, I've been really trying to unpack why. <laughs> and I've been trying to understand what it is about school culture that doesn't allow colleagues to go um, to that level of vulnerability with each other as well. So I've been, yeah, trying to really unpack that in my own mind a little bit. <laughs> Do you think one of the reasons is because leaders don't model vulnerability very often? I think that could be a huge part of it. And that um, that martyr kind of culture as well, where it's like it's hard work um, and leaders just look like it doesn't affect them at all. Like, well, that's what I see a lot. And I, I'm probably guilty of that at times too. I've been in the industry for quite a while. Um, we see a lot of challenges. There's a lot of incidents. There's a lot of tricky moments in our day, um, you know, and maybe I don't look like it affects me. Um, you know, there's all those moments in the day where, where teachers are probably looking to a leader going, well, they're, they're not looking like there's anything going wrong. So I better keep my mouth closed as well. And yeah, it could be that for sure. It's interesting because um, I do the leadership performance coach role for a, um, a national professional qualification we have here for senior leaders. And one of the activities that, that they had to do, one of my participants had said that they had developed this really good emotional regulation they, they were really good at self-regulating so they role modeled that for staff and I said there's you know there's a bit of a you, you need a caveat here because if I think if a leader thinks that showing people that they deal with their emotions and the, uh, they don't necessarily accept that I'm self-regulating I did feel that emotion but this is how I this is how I managed to look think about what I was feeling and then come up with some strategies for dealing with that it can very easily look from the outside like you're saying that oh these leaders oh they're so good at like oh and I you know I do get emotional I do sometimes want to get under the table and cry <laughs> I think as head of English sometimes I just wanted to get under the table and say don't anybody come to me and ask me anything <laughs> so I just want to sit here and just but it's a it's a I think it's a really difficult balance to strike that, isn't it? As a leader, sort of accepting your vulnerabilities, but you do want to role model to staff, being able to cope under quite a lot of stress. It's a difficult one, that, isn't it? It's a very difficult one. I don't know that there's a, a solid answer for that one at all. It's a very tricky spot to be in. Does it come down to just like the more work I do in schools and the more I do coaching, the more experience I get doing what I'm doing now. Is it just about, so you're saying that the curious thing, the conversations, having the courage to admit to people, I don't, I'm not always like so cool and calm and collected. And, and I'm interested in what you do. Like we don't really ever allow staff allow staff provide opportunities for staff to share things like that do we you know mm. how do you cope with like this is a, accepting you know this is a very stressful job how are you dealing with that how's it working mm. for you are you dealing with it some someone in the women leaders group coaching um in one of the sessions said oh you know it's one of those someone will say to me are you okay because this 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 suspect i'm not and then i'll burst into tears and it's it's about being able to talk about things like that because if you get to that point you know you're really not okay you should have recognized that in yourself a while mm. back but if it's been modeled to you that you just keep everything bottled up and just deal with it is it about opening up 
conversations and having those discussions and actually just like being able to talk to each other I think so and I also think um like yeah when I say like I'm in leadership and there are tricky moments and I look like I might look to staff like it doesn't impact me much um the reality is I've been in the field for 12 years and I've seen most incidents that I can imagine so they're not new (laughs) um so my response would be quite different to someone who's new in the field um, so there's, there is a reality to that, but that doesn't mean other parts of the job aren't hard and that I'm not having other difficult moments in the day. So the things that staff would assume are difficult for me often aren't. And so then it looks like I cope really well, uh, but maybe it's about being honest about the things that are actually harder um, in the role and talking to staff a little bit more openly and a bit more vulnerably about that as well. Yeah. yeah and just acknowledging like we are humans and at the end of the day too we want to see that there's teachers in our teams who have um you know leadership in their future too that don't think that they have to become this like emotionless leader to be able to do it as well (laughs) but you don't want people queuing up at your office to like be blubbering all day do you because you say it's okay to be it's okay to be emotional and then everybody's just breaking down all the time it's it's hard to create a, a balance isn't it where you say it's okay to be emotional like be vulnerable but at the same time you know we've got to we've got to teach children we're in a we're in a like a public facing role Mm. you've got to be able to and I think this comes back to maybe maybe it comes back to some of the trauma-informed practices because I feel like a lot of the time we're dealing with adults who are not necessarily good at dealing with their emotions because we've never trained or taught children and I think there's so much more work in the UK now there's a huge amount of work going on in terms of zones of regulation self-regulation helping children to identify their emotions and deal with their emotions and does some of this work is it part of the trauma um the trauma-informed work that that you do can you tell us a little bit about that and how that supports the young people because I think I think adults have a lot to learn from that don't they oh absolutely um yeah we're, we're a very trauma-informed school and we've had a lot of training in it um and yeah it was interesting just hearing you speak about that so the zones of regulation are actually up in every classroom wall in our school um and young people you know let us know every time they enter the classroom which zone they're in and why they're in that zone um and they can link up with different emotions um, so, yeah, we're really, really encouraging them to identify where they're up to in the day so that we know how to best support them. Um, so we do it very, very well for young people. We have focus plans for them. So if they're in a zone that's not working for them or things are a bit tricky, they've got like action things that they can do to help them refocus. Um, yeah, we do safety planning with them where they tell us, you know, what, what does it look like when things get to the red zone for them? What do they want from us when that happens? Um, you know how can we best support them and then we make a plan for them like where in the school they can go if they're in that zone what strategy they need to access Um, so they're getting amazing experience in understanding themselves um, getting language for it and learning about how to regulate (laughs) Um, but then we do it less as adults don't we? we we don't seem to have the same conversations and understand that it's actually true for us too that it's real real experience for us as well um, I do have a focus plan at my desk though. So I do, um, <laughs> I like I got the team to do it themselves too. And I put mine up above my desk so that when people come in, they can sort of see that I, I acknowledge that I've got strategies that I access if I'm not feeling great. Um, 
And then, yeah, I used to have a ready to learn scale up next to my desk as well. And I'd shift it so people knew sort of what zone I was in <laughs> um, around how I was tracking for the day. Um, but in terms of like having those conversations as a team or just acknowledging that that's normal part of human life, um, I think we don't do it as like nowhere near enough as a team or as adults and, I don't um, think, and provide that opportunity. I don't think we have a vocabulary for talking about our emotions and our feelings either. If mm. you, you ask people, you know, describe some feelings to me, they might say, well, they'd be sad, angry, happy, uh, upset. And then they might be getting to the <laughs> to the bottom of their like describe. And I don't I don't mean that to sound insulting to people. Just I think that's that's the way it is. I, I when I'm doing uh, coaching, I've uh, I've got um, an emotions wheel that's got you know those basic emotions in the middle. But then you know lots of different words to describe different elements of that because you know you might be angry because you're resentful but you might be angry because you it's really I'm showing now my own lack of vocabulary for it but you know you know what I mean you might be angry Mm. because you're resentful but you might be angry because you're disappointed yeah yeah. and and it's two completely different like it, it would come under the heading of anger but it's two different emotions and you probably want to unpick that in a different way well like Mm. what's causing the resentment what is it that you're resenting that person for where's that come from whereas if you're feeling disappointed it would be looking at how how are you disappointed what has disappointed you specifically about it how might things have been different so having that vocabulary for feelings and emotions can help you with that sort of curiosity element as well can't they oh absolutely and like, as you said, it's not insulting towards anyone, like to say that we don't actually, because it's, it's, it's skill and we haven't practiced it. Like it wasn't part of our generations growing up. Um, it wasn't in our curriculum. Um, our parents weren't equipped with that language either. So yeah, and it is, it's a skill and it's something that needs to be practiced. And I'm, I'm really glad to see schools are doing it now and that young people are going to be moving forward a lot more in, like self-aware and um, with language that they can use to really describe what's going on for them and then be able to get out of it a little bit easier too. And I think when you talk about trauma-informed, I mean, obviously with everything, there is a, there's a spectrum, isn't there? And some young people and adults have been through horrendous trauma and repeated trauma, you know, something that's happened and that, that kind of... But virtually everybody has experienced some sort of trauma as a young person Mm. haven't they you know I I would say virtually everybody you're probably lucky if you come out of childhood without having had something that's had a a, quite a negative impact on you yeah it does does that impact on the work that you do with young people I mean probably in your setting you get young people who are at that sort of extreme end of, of the spectrum but how how can it work in a school sort of in a school where I worked in a high school where you'll get you know probably very few children who are at that end of the the spectrum and and like I suppose it'd be like a bell curve probably wouldn't it in terms of most people probably somewhere in the middle and very few people are at that end Mm. can it still work in a in a school you know that trauma-informed practice can it still work in a school where you've got fewer of the sort of those who've been significantly impacted by trauma 
Yeah, I think it's as you said, Vicky, that um, most people don't get through childhood without some experience of trauma. Um, and yeah, and it doesn't really matter the scale of the event. It's more the reaction to the event right. um, in, in what, what trauma really is. Um, so I think best practice is ultimately making an assumption that there is some trauma <laughs> um, and then giving young people the skills and the processes and practices to work through that. Um, ultimately, trauma-informed practice can sometimes be best practice in a school anyway. So it's definitely applicable to everyone. Um, and I think particularly now in 2022, it would be hard it would be hard to say that COVID lockdowns and yeah. um, some of the global events that are going on at the moment, they are traumas and our young people are experiencing those and witnessing those. Um, so we are at a point right now where there, there's a lot of trauma. And I always say, you know, <laughs> what works with the kids works with the adults. So you can implement quite a lot of those things, can't you? The good thing I think is that we're at the point where we're coming right back and we're teaching. I know a, a few of the people who are participants on the MPQSL are in primary schools where they're doing this from really sort of young, probably reception year one. It's obviously, you know, adapted. So it, it works. So it builds up so that as young people, when that trauma or those traumatic events happen, you can actually deal with it at the time. And I think that's, you know, we're in a struggle now because we're trying to, we've got lots of people who've been through trauma who didn't have the, didn't have the, the, the strategies or the coping mechanisms to work through it at the time. And obviously it's having an impact on them now. But do you feel like that will help to sort of be a preventative measure as well? Oh, absolutely. I think it's like we were talking about before. It's just like even language development to understand what is happening. So it's hard to know what an experience is if you don't have the language for it. Um, yeah, so I think even just having language around it and then when something does happen, it's like you've got the words to describe what it is that you're going through and what you're experiencing and then how to navigate forward from that too. So I think there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of wealth in trauma-informed practice and being prepared for supporting ourselves and supporting others um, I'm, when, a, when a new trauma emerges. I'm thinking about parents as well. Do you involve parents in, in the work? I'm thinking, you know, a conversation at the dinner table with the, you know, with the wheel of emotions, what, what feelings and emotions have you experienced today at different points during the day? Might be a nicer conversation. I don't know. Might be. <laughs> but <laughs> if you could have a conversation like that, rather than, oh, how was school? What did you do at school? What things did you feel at school today at different points? And having those conversations about feelings and emotions might be something that parents could do. But do you do other work with parents? Do you do workshops and support them to use this? Because I think one of the things I was asking one of the participants is it's OK doing all that stuff in school. But do you know, do you do mm. the work with parents so that they get the same messages and use the same language at home and in school? Yeah. Um, professionally, I've run some parent workshops um, external to my school, <laughs> um, but at my current school, I'm in a really interesting situation where um, a lot of our young people don't live with their, their parents yeah. technically. They may live with a foster parent or in residential care, which is actually with staff who, you know, their shift work staff members. Um, so there's a variety of young people at my school in very different living situations. Um, but then there are some parents as well who are very proactive um, and like their young person is still coming to our school for, for various reasons. Um, and those parents have been very engaged in some of this work at home as well. And you can actually really see that difference and hear that young person, um, you know, really getting to know themselves a lot better and actually coming in, having the strategies ready to go for the day, 
Um, we have some parents who will actually like text us on their way in saying they are in blue zone or they are in green zone ready to go. Um, so yeah, we, we do our best to try and share this with parents where, where appropriate and carers. And like, so even for some of our young people living in residential care homes, um, they will then have a care team who work with them. So they'll have like a case manager, maybe a psychologist, could be a youth justice worker, whoever it is. Um, so our youth workers from our school attend those meetings as well and they become part of that care team. Um, and we do our best to really talk about what's working well at school and then share that with the care team so that they can actually be using that with the young person as well. So if the young person has to have a very difficult meeting with their youth justice worker, well, why not check in what zone they're in at first and see what strategies they need before you start having the conversation with them? Um, yeah, so we do try and share it as much as possible because um, we often do have a lot of success with our young people at school where what we're doing at school is working for them, but then they go home and they're having a challenge. Um, and then we might support that home with, with strategies that we use. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think um, myself included, some parents at times need help themselves in dealing with their own emotions when dealing with their children. And if mm. you're sharing this with parents, and it's the same with staff as well, I think, because we've, as adults, we've missed out on that element of learning when we were younger. We've not learned about the mental health. We've not learned about well-being. We've not learned about emotional self-regulation or anything like that. It can it can really help us as well, can't it, to learn this? And then hopefully some parents might be able to use it and apply it to their own emotions because it's hard being a parent. I can tell you that because I've got a 16 year old and a 20 year old. It's really, really difficult. And I would deal with kids all day at school, and not lose my temper and be so patient mm. with them and be able to implement lots of different strategies and come home with my own children. And they really get it in the neck some days. I feel, I feel <laughs> I've had to apologize to them for that. But I feel like, you know, when that is the case, if you're teaching parents these things and you're teaching mm. staff these things, it can help, it can really help the adults' well-being as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because even look, to be honest, we even have meetings sometimes where we have to talk about a situation that may have been challenging for a young person at school, um, where there might have been an incident where safety was compromised. And then we bring them in for a meeting. And occasionally we'll have a parent who'll be like, I want to come to that meeting. Um, so before any meeting begins, we actually always go over the school values again and disagree to how we're going to operate in the meeting. Um, and we get the parent to do that with us as well. So anyone who comes to the meeting has to commit to operating by our school values within the meeting. So it's about being respectful while we're talking to each other um, and participating appropriately. And yes, we get the parents to actually commit to that with us as well. So yeah, wherever possible, we are sharing our practice with them. And hopefully it is having a little bit of an influence about how things go at home. I'm sure I'm sure it is having an influence so just to wrap things up if you could advise senior leaders on one thing that they could do to support well-being of the well-being of staff in their school like all of the staff in their school what one thing would you identify as being a key element that is a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's, um, it's just. Can I say one. two? <laughs> yeah, okay. You can say two. I'll let you. Um, number one would be co-create the wellbeing culture. So don't try and do it to your team, but find out what they would like yeah. and get them to create it. 
And number two would be, how can you slow things down for a little bit? Like, what can you do right now that will slow the day down, even just a tiny bit or for one part of the day for your team? It's really interesting. I mean, I could talk all day and we, we are getting like to time here, but I say to, you know, lots of things in schools are done. People are trying to do things at breakneck speed. Everything has to mm. be done really, really quickly. And I often say to, you know, people I'm coaching, working with, when I'm doing leadership training is slow down to speed up mm-hmm. you'll always get more done and have more of an impact if you just slow everything down take a breath take a step back from it all and just think right okay what do we need to focus on here and and it, I think you've hit the nail on the head there in terms of you what you were saying earlier is schools are frenetic places that they're they're a bit chaotic at times and everything's just so busy 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 and I think one of the contributing factors to that is that you've got lots of things to do but actually you're teaching these kids in front of you so the time that you've got to do those other jobs on the list that you've got to do it's always really short and you're always working in really short ah, I've got to get that done because the time's ticking and it's like you know mm. time's going time's going time's going I've got to do this got to do that ah I didn't get it all done I'm back in the classroom I'm in front of the children now and there is that sense of everything's just so like the clock is ticking on it I bet you I'm feeling the stress now I'm like ah <laughs> But if you can do something like you're saying that just slows that down at some point and takes that away and says, you know, just have one of your frees where you don't do anything. I say free. I know it's not free. It's a non-contact time. But just let people have, well, just go and sit in the staff room for half an hour of your, your free time. Don't worry about all those things on the list. As long as you're teaching good lessons when you're in front of the children, all that other stuff, it can it can be done at another time it doesn't have to be done right now absolutely and teachers that they need to be creative and that can only happen when we have time time to actually not do anything and let the ideas generate a little bit and I think that's why things aren't improving as fast as we want them to in schools because we're trying to do things too quickly we're not actually going okay let's just slow this down a bit and just focus on a couple of things that we know really really work in our school um so if people want to find out i know it's in australia and the time differences are going to be obviously difficult to manage but if people did want to join um you know the circles that you've got with the teachers Mm -hmm. well how do they find out how they can do that where do they go to, to to join in that if they want to yes so we have a website so it's actually teacherswell.com and because we are running after hours, I actually don't know if the time difference would be terrible. <laughs> I mean, it'll probably be during your school day, but it would actually be in your morning. So um, right. it might be possible for someone. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and if you want to get in touch with you, are you on Twitter? Are you in social, on social media spaces? Yep. So they'll find me on Twitter and Instagram um, and LinkedIn if they wanted to, just all under my name, essentially. Yeah, you're probably quite lucky, aren't you, that you can get your own name on email addresses and because <laughs> it's not yeah. it's not a 
um, it's not a name I've ever come across before, put it that way. So it's is it just at Megan Corcoran on Twitter? Corcoran. Um, it's Megan A. Corcoran on Twitter. So there's an okay. A in the middle. Um, and then on Instagram, it's Megan.Corcoran. And then um, the little line, I don't know what you call the line at the end. <laughs> underscore. The underscore. Underscore. Um, and are you on LinkedIn as well? I am, yeah. Yeah. And I, I assume we can just find you via your name on LinkedIn. Yeah. Megan, it's yeah. been so great to talk to you. I wish you every success in the work that you're doing. I'm sure you're going to have a huge impact on well-being in schools. Hopefully, you know, we might get you over to the UK at some point, sharing you, sharing your wisdom and, and helping us over here because we definitely need Look, it. I would love to. <laughs> I'd love to come over. <laughs> have a great evening. I've got the rest of the day ahead of me, but you've you've got uh, some evening left, I hope, to go and <laughs> yeah. do something. I don't know, watch Netflix or something like that. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks so I much. I really for ha- enjoy talking to people like Megan who have a really common sense approach to the role of a school leader or teacher so I want to say a big thank you to Megan for coming and joining us on the show and even more so because of the time difference and she did that (laughs) she did the interview at a time that probably was less convenient than she would have wanted it to be so thank you so much to her for that I think she talked about some really key things to do with well-being and the, the the thing that I'm really taking from what she said is the idea of co-creating a well-being approach, that it's something that the whole school community makes a contribution to, that people feel heard when something like that is being created, because we're trying to work in a more collaborative way in schools. Collaboration helps to make initiatives effective. And if you're going to try to improve well-being, that It really is about how you make staff feel like they're involved, like they're part of the community, like their ideas and their views are listened to and that they have some ownership and that they're a part of the why, that they're a part of the reason that you're doing this. So that idea of co-creating the wellbeing approach, I think for me, is just absolutely key. You can't just create and impose a well-being policy on your staff. I mean, that's just not the idea of it at all. So think about what well-being means in your school as well. Allow staff to have a say in that. Allow them to contribute something, what it means for them. Because for all of your different members of staff, it is going to mean different things, I'm afraid. And you're going to have to come to some sort of general consensus on it. And that is so important that everybody makes a contribution to that. So please do take that away and think about how you can how you can include staff in your school in developing the idea of what well-being is and what sort of approach you want to take from it. I'm really hoping that you're enjoying the summer holidays. It looks like the weather is about to pick up again. We've had a few days of, oh, it's not been that nice here. It's been warm and it's been lovely to get outside, but I think the sun is going to return midweek and I am off to my caravan in Anglesey. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. So whatever you're doing for the summer holidays, I would love you to share that on the Twitter page that we've got so that's at 
we lead well pod c1 so make a contribution to that tell us what you're doing this summer holidays so that you you know you get that time to chill out and relax in the summer but whatever you're doing have a great time enjoy it and i will speak to you next time take care of yourself take care of your staff and lead well this episode of the we lead well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchats.com and the Teach Well Alliance.